One of the largest industries in America is the restaurant industry. Imagine the chaos of each restaurant wondering how to interpret CDC guidelines, keep both employees and customers safe, and keep their businesses afloat at the beginning of the pandemic. That challenge was one that Emily Williams-Knight faced, and she overcame it as the CEO of the Texas Restaurant Association. Listen to her story. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Emily Williams-Knight. She is the president and CEO of the Texas Restaurant Association. She's been there since May of 2019, and uh, she's here with us today, and we're really excited to have her. Welcome, Emily. Great. Thank you for having me. So, of course, Texas is a really important state. It's very large. It, it has the largest state uh, city in the country right now. And so it has a whole lot of influence, not only just because of what happens to it, because it has so much diversity, but also because perhaps it becomes a harbinger of what may happen in other states. So let's talk about that a little bit. Tell me what you think about the restaurant industry, and we're going to talk straight to COVID. What do you think has been lessons learned? What what have we been doing with COVID? Yeah, it's hard to believe that we're on 20 months. I, I still will probably never forget where I was when I received the call from the governor's office saying that, you know, we have 254 counties in Texas. And so we had almost a piecemeal, different cities and counties were doing different things. And it was really hard for operators with more than a single location to even navigate what to do. And so, you know, 20 months later, I I think a couple of things, I think we've learned a lot of important lessons for for our sector, the most being that we are essential. You know, we, if you were to pull a dollar out of your pocket, 51 cents goes towards a restaurant from your food dollar. Um, That's pretty extraordinary. And so when we saw really the entire nation shut down, you saw very quickly that not only were restaurants essential, but the people that work in them are incredibly essential. You know, I think for us, and I can speak specifically for Texas, another important lesson really is when we all come together, we can do great things. Um, you know, we, we, we had restaurants that had never been part of the association. We had restaurants that had just opened. We had long-term restaurants. And, but overnight, all of them were shut down from the primary way they generate revenue. And so I think what we saw is when we come together, we can navigate a crisis. Um, we certainly lost some restaurants, but when we pull together, we can drive great change, which is what we did here in Texas to get through it. So did you see a lot of restaurants feeding hungry people who had lost their jobs? You know, that's what was probably the most humbling for, for me to lead this group of incredible people. We not only had COVID, but then we also had the weather event, the ice storm. Yeah. And, and that was another week to two weeks without power. And what you saw is restaurants losing everything, all their inventory. A lot of them had used paycheck protection money to buy that inventory to keep going. And it was lost. And in order to make sure that they did what they always do, which is respond to their community, instead of just 
getting rid of that food, they turned those into meals. And so we had restaurants that were feeding first responders during COVID, obviously, but also then in the ice storm. We saw them turn over their entire inventory. We saw them lean in to some of our remote areas of Texas and make sure people had food. It was unbelievable that in the greatest crisis of their time, they were still looking to see how they could care for their communities. So did they have already established relationships with food banks and things like that? Or was that part of this immediacy of we need to develop these relationships right now? Yeah, interesting enough, we actually played almost a matchmaker role. And so whether it be with the governor creating meal kits to those that were homebound and then using restaurants to deliver that food, we raised about $3 million from individual nations and companies and pass that out in grants to independent restaurants. And many of them, including Blue Cross Blue Shield, they sort of spread that across the whole state. And so they would, we would contract the association with a restaurant to prepare meals and then deliver someone in need. And so you saw this cooperation that you've really never seen before. And it was competitors now working together to make sure that their communities made it through. And a lot of these relationships, I would imagine, then become permanent relationships for the next time. Because Texas is going to experience hurricanes in the future and probably tornadoes and things that we aren't anticipating in particular, but they just happen. And so having these relationships already cemented is actually a good thing. Absolutely. The networks and the cooperation. And I remember when, you know, our hospitals, we had a crisis point and it was our restaurants that were coming in at the time. There weren't vaccines. You know, they were really taking a risk for themselves to come in and put these meals together to deliver them to hospitals because so many of those folks either were from outside the state, they were in a hotel. And so we would deliver to hotels and restaurants stepped up in a very big way. And I think you saw the way the Texas legislature responded and supported restaurants and the association was really a direct nod to the appreciation they felt from from these small business owners and employees really stepping up. So what did you have to do as an association? And let me just kind of back off from that question for a moment and kind of discuss the fact that there are so many employees of restaurants. They become one of the large restaurants as a as a group become one of the largest employers in not only in one state, but in the country. And we often overlook that because we aren't used to thinking of the number of employees in an industry as as easily as we think about the number of employees of a company. But how how did they protect their employees? Yeah, you know, goodness, if if I think back, so we had about 1.3 million employees in our industry just in the state of Texas. So if you think about that, we're the second largest private employer. And so we are diverse in nature and seven out of 10 are small businesses. These are not big companies. And I think people lose sight of the fact this is a mom and pop industry that's made up of people from every every bit of diversity, every generation. I mean, it's really the place that anyone can come and be welcome to work. It it, it really within three weeks, we had almost 800,000 of those individuals on the sidelines. So they were furloughed or laid off because the restaurants, only about 35% of almost 80,000 restaurants had a chance to employ anyone, right? So so overnight, and so a couple of things happened. One, we will lobby really hard in Washington for the Paycheck Protection Program or PPP. And the reason was, is that we could act almost as the unemployment office for restaurants, right? And for the state of Texas, that we Mm -hmm. could keep 
employed. But there's no doubt that overnight employees were let go because there was no line of sight that these restaurants would even be able to move forward. 35% could generate a penny the morning after the shutdown because they had a drive-through window or delivery. And so I think what, you know, I, I say that because if I look to today and some of the hiring challenges that we and others are experiencing, I think there is a little bit of that shock and awe to employees. But as soon as those restaurants could benefit from federal relief, right, they brought as many employees back as they could, but clearly not to the levels that we had in, in 2019. But you have to remember the tax implication on that, the spending implication on that, and the ability for these restaurants to recover is all about the employees. And so that's why we're still seeing 20 months in a lot of challenges for restaurants. Well, so how long were the restaurants in Texas actually shut down? And during that period, were they able to do curbside pickup or other um, arrangements that allowed them at least to stay partially open and employ some people? Yeah, we knew that that when we got the call, it was about 24 hours from being shut down. And my team and I knew right away, we got with our board and said, you know, we've, we've got to figure a way to generate revenue or they're just not going to make it. It was, remember, it was two weeks to help shore up the supply chain. But I think we all knew in our gut, ironically, I'd just come back from DC where they had signed the first coronavirus bill, right? But it still felt like a lifetime away. It was like a New York problem. So here we are now shut down. And we did two things. We knew right away we had to get a, some way to generate revenue. So we got the governor to allow us to do alcohol to go. Mm-hmm. We could deliver alcohol that was passed in the previous legislature, but we wanted it to with food. And so that was number one. And the second is we wanted them to be able to sell groceries because we knew with the supply chain being very challenged between restaurants and grocery stores. So you could go up to a restaurant, pull up, pop open your trunk, get a big jug of margaritas, a plate of brisket and some toilet paper and drive away. And so that's the first thing we did. And we knew that if we could do that and then work really hard to actually build the reopening guidelines, right? So amass a group of really great restaurateurs, small, big, little, you name it, write the opening guidelines to be safe and then send those to the governor. We were open on May 1st of 2020 and we've never been closed again. Oh my, that's really a long time of being open. And then were people actually going to restaurants at that point? They were, we had people come back. We certainly did not see a drop off in the curbside or delivery. Those numbers stayed consistent, but as soon as restaurants opened, people began to return clearly in smaller numbers. But, you know, one of the things we knew is that it was going to be a partnership, right? We weren't going to get people back feeling safe about being around a table again in a restaurant unless we could really ensure their safety. Mm -hmm. So we had to fight against a lot of um, misleading headlines and narrative and, you know, people who said they had a scientific study, but there was no science And we created something called the Texas Restaurant Promise, which has been replicated everywhere, right? The Arkansas Promise, the Kentucky Promise. But really what it is, is it's posted on the outside of a restaurant door and it says, I, the restaurateur, will promise you these things when you enter, but then you, the guest, are also committing to these set of principles. And it was really a way to say that we weren't going to get anywhere through this unless we worked together. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped us quite a bit. Um, And then we had incredible support from the legislature and the governor's office, really reinforcing that go to a restaurant. There's no reason you can't. You can get food to go if you don't want to dine in or you can go dine in or you can buy a gift card 
and use it later, but all three ways will help a restaurant survive. And so I'm really grateful for the support that we had. Did you see an increase in outdoor dining during this time? We did, and we saw some of that wane a little bit in sort of our July, August months because it's so hot. Mm -hmm. Um, But we had city after city across. I mean, you mentioned the size of Texas, right? So Houston, San Antonio is now the seventh largest city. And if you combine Dallas and Fort Worth, it's also in the top 10. So you have you know, a lot of those city leaders, everyone seemed to put politics aside and they allowed these restaurants to expand onto the streets, to go into parking lots, right? We had our Alcohol Beverage Commission waive the alcohol, like, you know, you can only have it under your roof and allow that license to go to the, to the street. And now what we're seeing is a lot of that turn into legislation and law going forward, right? So how do you preserve all that good stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, learned in this, because there are some good learnings that came out of COVID for restaurants. So what is um, the agency or the association really like yours that would cover bars in Texas? What is there a separate association for, for bars? I, I laugh because that's a tricky one. Yes, there is, there is an association. However, you know, we, we decided early on with the governor's office that everything was going to be done under executive order. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we sort of come to agreement that if we didn't agree on a path forward, which was always going to be driven by the medical team, that we would have those discussions behind the scenes, that we were not going to go on politically into the media, right, with any kind of disagreement. And, and I think that was really wise. Our friends on the bar side, um, that association decided to actually file a formal lawsuit against Governor Abbott. We advised that wasn't a good idea. That wasn't how we were going to get through this. But by doing that, I think they made it a little bit more challenging for themselves. And so ironically, the outcome is that a number of bars that we were able to help reopen, they opened about, they opened a couple of weeks after us, Mm -hmm. but then we were able to actually work hand in hand to sort of make sure a food food and beverage could go with bar and allow them to actually get reopened. And so we've picked up so many new members that are actually on the bar side with heavy food and beverage because of our ability to, you know, navigate the politics, but also to get these businesses back up and in functioning because the bars were the worst of any of us hit hard. So it's interesting to me that you added alcohol to go and as a person from New Orleans in particular, we seem to be able to walk anywhere with a drink. And yes. <laughs> yes, God bless New Orleans. <laughs> and, uh, and it's really interesting because I've been asked a number of times to talk about when that happened so that people would be able to compare the post-open container to the pre-open container situation. And of course, we never had a pre-open container situation. It always was an open container situation. So we don't have any data that would talk about another time. And so people are always so disappointed that there's nothing to reference. And so we all sort of grew up seeing it and knowing about it. And more than anything, everyone that I know has had, and my parents even would remark about this, you would go to another part of Louisiana even, not just um, another state, but even to another part of Louisiana. And people would be upset because you walked into your front yard with a beer. My parents just thought it was hysterical. Like, who cares? It's my property, (laughs) you know, that sort of thing. But 
I know people who've gone to picnics in parks in other states and been arrested because they had wine or something, um, which, you know, they had glassware and everything. It was like a real party. And it's hard to imagine it when you grow up with it, that everywhere else doesn't have it. So I think that's very interesting that maybe people could look to the way it's been managed in New Orleans as a way to see how it can actually work. Because the people who are opposed to it are always so full of predictions about how terrible it's going to be and how it's going to create crime and it's going to create all of these horrible situations, which it doesn't have to. And and I think Texas is, I mean, we have 30 million people here, right? So we're a really large state and all of the things we accomplished were under executive order, but that means that they're going to end. And so Mm -hmm. we actually, I have an incredible government affairs um, woman who we went to the legislature that was this last spring and we legislated and turned into law that alcohol to go is forever. Groceries are forever, right? And so we passed six bills this session, which is sort of unheard of for us, but we took all of the things we learned like liability protection, right? All the things restaurants needed. And we knew we had this moment where mm-hmm. there was incredible empathy for restaurants, but also, you know, our population is surging. And so we've got to have more restaurants and they have to have a great environment to thrive. And so all those big wins from the executive order side are now law in Texas. And so that really gives operators looking to move in a line of sight of very favorable business conditions and the ability to generate revenue in multiple sources. So we're really proud of that. That, I mean, that is really wonderful that you've turned it into legislation so that people can rely on it being there for yes. the, the future as opposed to just a short period. That's great. Texas is pretty conservative. So if you think about sort of alcohol, it, it's a big win. Um, and I think it's a big knot. And what you said is so important, which is we learned almost for 15 months that we didn't have a lot of the episodes and a lot of the fear that people were, you know, including... Yes. Yeah, because it has to be tamper proof. It can't be in the, you know, in the passenger cabinet. And it's no different than really going to the package store and buying something. And so now you've just generated another whole way to drive margin for a restaurant that's under really amazing pressure, right? Because of labor and the supply chain challenges. But it's not open container in the way you can no, you can't walk out of a, yeah, you can't like be drinking it in your car, you know, no. absolutely. Yeah, in the car, that's probably way too far. Although I remember when you could still do that in Louisiana, but you can't anymore. (laughs) But you could go to the park, for example, and have um, a crawfish boil that had beer or something. Wow. Yeah, we've been able to do that. It's more about if you were to get um, Uber Eats or let's not Uber Eats, let's say you ordered from your favorite Italian restaurant delivery. Mm-hmm. You, you've been able now to get alcohol with that and it can be delivered to your home or you can go to a restaurant and get to go. And as long as it's with food, you can get beer, wine or mixed drinks to go. And so that's been the real win. And so your legislation allows then these delivery services to deliver liquor. As long as they apply for the license to deliver. So okay. some of them are not engaged yet. Uh-huh. Um, just partner with TABC. They're rolling out delivery driver training, which we hope to, you know, to work with the insurance companies on to provide some protection. But right now, the minute that alcohol is handed off, it is the liability of the person who's taken it. And so, so I think a lot of the delivery companies that are stepping in now one after another is they just wanted to see sort of how the legislation unfolded. And now it should be you know, quite significant for them as long as it's done safely. 
So this is the lawyer in me asking all these questions. One more, and then we'll kind of set (laughs) set aside. But does it extend to being able to get delivery of packaged liquor from, say, a liquor store or something like that? Can that be delivered? This is just for restaurants, um, our our bill, right? But (laughs) but here's the neat thing about Texas. We have an interesting alcohol um, sort of hierarchy. We only buy from package stores. So that's why I think it was also a great partnership and a model we put together. So if this barbecue restaurant is ordering liquor from X package store that they're now going to assemble into drinks that are made to go with their food direct to consumer, all three, you know, essentially stakeholders still win, you know, and that's the key is that you look across the country, there's a number of uh, pieces of legislation in different state houses that is stalled because it would reduce the business of one entity versus the other. This one, everyone still is in the same equation. It's just how the consumer gets it. And we know, especially with millennials and the group following, this is something that rates very high. It's almost north of 70% to have the option to get everything from one, you know, one place, just the convenience. Right, right, right. Yes. Well, so Now that things are opening up and we have a sort of, I think, sense, at least I seem to sense a feeling of, especially among vaccinated people, that there's a a relaxation a little bit that maybe things are going to eventually end and we'll go back to normal. There are things I think that, as you say, because of this feeling of emergency and everyone working together have made changes that may be permanent. So, of course, we've just talked about these things that have been put into law. But what other things do you think are going to be changes that are going to change the industry forever? Sure. You know, I think first and foremost, it's going to be technology. I mean, we, we really accelerated a good three plus years ahead of the pace we were on for things like, you know, contactless ordering and transaction and payment, the acceleration of the number of openings in restaurants due to either the initial part of what happened to restaurants, but those people now going out and finding other jobs, right, or finding jobs they can do at home. I think that's going to accelerate things like kitchen technology, ordering technology, how you interact with that restaurant. So I think what you're going to see, and I just came out of a restaurant leadership conference where it was literally all things technology. And Mm -hmm. I like to say, I spent 20 years in higher education, and this very much feels like when online learning first penetrated the traditional university. Mm -hmm. And so there'll be early adopters, there'll be adopters that never jump on board, and then there's going to be the middle. And so what we feel like is that restaurants now need a bit of a pause because they scrambled, right, to get a delivery partner, to get new technology, to figure out their website. And it's almost now let's all kind of not pause because you've got to paint the plane while it's flying because you're running your business. But how do all those systems work together, right? How do we make the best experience for both the employee and the guest? And so you're going to see a lot of that. Um, You're also going to see the continued movement of ghost kitchens or virtual kitchens. Mm -hmm. I think that we've learned that restaurants can be even more profitable with a smaller footprint. So the mega restaurant with a mega indoor, we are starting to see some of the new builds here in Texas be a a, a smaller footprint. And then, you know, if you want to expand, let's say you're in North Dallas and you want to expand and check out maybe the Fort Worth market. Traditionally, you would always go build a new restaurant. 
-hmm. And now with building costs and time and labor, that could take six months to a year or longer. Well, now you can simply rent a 400 square foot kitchen in one of these ghost kitchens and do delivery only and test that market with your brand. And so I think that is sort of, I think, number two. And I think number three is we're going to have to do a lot of work on immigration. I think in order to sustain the sector and the type of growth, we're going to have to have a plan for immigration. We are certainly a destination for folks from every walk of life, from every background, and that labor pool is going to change for restaurants. And so how do we create a role that maybe, you know, from a salary standpoint or hourly standpoint, we've already seen wages far accelerate anything we've been that before, but then how do we build an ecosystem where we can really show that path where you can come in and build an entire career. And I also think maybe last is really around menu efficiency. I think the supply chain really challenges have taught us that do that what you do well, and there's probably not as much incentive to vary off into menus that are 20 pages long <laughs> and has something for everyone. I think we're going to see that consolidation and alignment here. And I don't think it's going to go away. Yeah, I, I really think one thing that has happened during this time is that a very nascent industry, which was the delivery industry, in a way, it was established enough that it could really ramp up quickly to meet the challenge. It didn't have to be established from scratch. Um, And it probably accelerated its growth exponentially because of this crisis. So instead of taking another five years or 10 years for everybody to be in the delivery mental state, all of a sudden you were in it immediately and you were able to use these delivery services. I think that those services are probably here to stay, but I think that there's going to be a a kind of tamping back a little bit because people want to get out and actually go to the restaurants and socialize and be among people right now that they felt a little constrained about. So I think that's going to have to kind of meet its own level at some point. But the fact that that was something that already had begun to exist is really fortunate because it would have been very different if we'd had to invent that at the same time as all these other things were happening. Definitely. Yeah. And I would just add, you know, I've thought a lot about the role that we play and I think it's so much more than just nourishment. I think what we've learned is that absent the dining table, you know, the ability to have discourse, the ability to have thoughtful discussion. I think we've learned an important lesson in COVID of when we isolate. And I think that, that you know, as we go forward as, as a nation, actually, and as a globe, sharing food around a table is one piece, but the human contact and interaction is what we need more than ever. And yes. you really only do that in a restaurant. And so, you know, I bet on restaurants long-term. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's something that we're not going to lose for sure. And I do, I do think that there've been some other things that are not directly restaurant related. I do think some people actually began to cook at home, mm-hmm. which they had never done. I have one son who lives in New York City and he began to cook at home and he never cooked anything. I mean, he might've yeah. warmed his leftovers from the restaurant <laughs> that he ate at, you know, that might've been his cooking. And now he and his girlfriend cook 
a lot. And so I think that they may not go out every single meal and they might actually eat at home still, not every night. I don't think that, I think they'll be happy to not do it every night, but they, that has been something that people have done. I mean, and everybody knows about the 25 extra pounds people have gained from baking. And so, you know, (laughs) so I do think that some of those things may be permanent also other kinds of lifestyle changes. But I do believe that the restaurant is here to stay. I certainly don't think it's going anywhere. And I think that we will have a greater appreciation for restaurants right now, especially because we've missed them. And yeah, the experience um, and, give us, it, it, yes. it's a, a disconnect from, from reality in a way and, and not in a bad way, right? We, we need those moments. And there's something about someone serving you food that again, it's more beyond nourishment, right? It's a human connection and it's, it's something that you can enjoy and that experience, those restaurants that offer that experience are going to stand out and they're going to be really successful in the months and years ahead. Yes. Yes. So does uh, Texas have lots of restaurants or just a handful of restaurants that you might be able to name where people actually go to be seen or is it really about the food and the camaraderie? Yeah, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, Texas is so diverse, right? So if you go from Lubbock to McAllen, Texas, they're night and day mm-hmm. culturally. I mean, we all have our Texas values and we, we love the state of Texas and there's a lot of pride. But if you were even to go from Dallas to San Antonio, they're very different markets. And so depending on where you really are in the state, I think like any, like on New York, we certainly have our hotspots where mm-hmm. you go to be seen. But I think more than anything, I think what we see now is that the dining numbers returning are really people and a lot of families that are returning to have that meal. And it's really the experience. And then I think what you're seeing restaurants do to your point of trying to make sure they capture as much of that food dollar as they can is that you see a lot of these almost to go kits where you make them at home. So, you know, one of my favorites is a hibachi restaurant that gives you the hats and this, you know, the chopsticks and all the things to do the fun hibachi dinner for dad. And they're just selling like hotcakes because they just, you pick it up and it's that same experience, but maybe it's in your home and you've invited some friends over. Right. Um, right. And so I think you're going to see a lot, a lot more of that, but that, that word experience, which can be overused, we are hearing more and more that if you're going to capture someone on site, you've got to offer an experience that stands out and, mm-hmm. and only a restaurant can do that. Right. So do you think that, and this is probably our last question before we, we uh, close off. Um, do you, I know that you have experience working at culinary schools, uh, yes. working with culinary schools. So do you think that there will be changes in the curriculum at culinary schools because of this? And what do you think those might be? Definitely. So we are very fortunate. We distribute a program called ProStart. So the National Restaurant Association has a program called ProStart, which is the best way to describe it is if you have a high school student, they can take AP classes or maybe an AP class, but also then go this vocational track. And their last two years, they're immersed in a restaurant and food service curriculum. Over the last year and a half, we've actually added almost 35 school districts in Texas. My first fear was that everyone, the young people were looking at what's happening to the industry and saying, I want no part of that because it was really horrific, Mm -hmm. right? What we've been through, we meaning the collective industry, but yet there's still this incredible passion for 
food creation, food design, food engineering. And so I think what you'll see over the next 24 to really 36 months, because the one thing about education is it doesn't tend to move very quick, mm-hmm. um, is that you will start to see a lot of the evolution around technology being a much bigger piece, beverage being a much, much bigger piece. Believe it or not, really the whole ecosystem and supply chain and logistics. I think we've learned, you know, when you have a small farm that isn't connected to, you know, the chain, and then how do you actually look at the logistics and packaging in a restaurant, right? There's going to be whole new streams that will feed a restaurant management degree that were pieces that we just didn't even talk about before. Mm -hmm. And then you also add into this sort of data analytics and marketing and social, that's going to have to be a much bigger piece of the curriculum because you can't, you, you need to be a great leader, but you've got to know these new ways and how you build brand loyalty on the marketing side. And so that curriculum will change as well. So I think you'll see the CIAs of the world who are, you know, best in the world. I think you'll see them very thoughtfully go about, you know, what does this industry look like in the future and how do we make sure we're training the best of the best for here and you know, obviously to work around the globe. So thank you so much, Emily. This has just been a delightful conversation. I learned so much and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.